following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Every young married couple in this room knows how the birth of their first child has absolutely radically changed their life, right? Everything was fine, everything was going along really well, and then, you know, you kind of got used to each other, and then you had a kid, and everything just was amazingly different. Now imagine, no matter if you're a young married or an old married, imagine having, at one point, you're pregnant, and then you have five children all at once. Would that radically change your life? How about six children, yeah? How about, are you ready, seven, seven. Yes, we have evidence that those have occurred. In fact, on May 28, 1934, it was the Dion sisters. They became the first known set of quintuplets. That's five kids to survive infancy, okay, one pregnancy. For the first decade of their lives, they were Canada's biggest tourist attraction. This is in the 30s. Bigger, no kidding, than Niagara Falls. I am not making this up. They, they gained all kinds of tourist revenue, which tells me a lot about, really, Canada. Okay, so I don't know. It just kind of spoke to me. But January 11th, 1974, the Rosekowitz sextuplets, six kids, were born, the first recorded set that survived to adulthood in Cape Town, South Africa. Can you imagine that? Six children at one time. One time. And then the seven was Bobby and Kenny Makahi in Des Moines, Iowa, November 19th, 1997. That's the first set of septuplets, seven kids to survive. Imagine that. I mean, husbands and wives. I mean, that's, that's not even two per, okay? You got two per, plus you got three left over. I mean, that's that's big deal. You know, when usually when families move to two kids to three, you know, they go from one-on-one to zone defense. I mean, that's, that's a big deal, right? Life-changing. Would you agree? Well, births of babies tend to have an incredible impact on our lives and even on our society. And as you're reading the scripture, you get the same feeling about what's going on in scripture about how these births were so incredibly dramatic and incredibly life-changing. I mean, Sarah's reaction when she's told that she's going to have a child, and she has a child, her husband is 100 years old, and she is 90 years old. How do you like that, seniors? Having a baby at 90. Yeah, I saw a couple of seniors just right now, just this moment, go, no, not a good thing, not a good thing. You had the Lord miraculously open the womb of uh, Manoah's wife in Judges 13, and she gave birth to Samson, who I think probably looked like a normal guy, but just had supernatural strength. Similarly, uh, you had uh, God allowing Hannah, who had also been barren in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and she gave birth to Samuel the prophet, who was significant, moving from judges to kings in Israel's history. And obviously, over a few months before Gabriel's appearance to Mary, the Lord enabled another elderly couple, an older couple, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, to conceive a child in Luke 1, and his name was what? John the Baptist. And he was called as the forerunner of the Messiah. He would be there to introduce and prepare the people for the coming of Messiah, and he was called actually the greatest man who's ever lived in Matthew 11, 11. So a significant birth as well, uh, as well. But the most remarkable birth of all was that of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the time when the God who created this universe, who has all power and all knowing and all significant authority, and here he is born as a a little child. He wasn't faking it, friends. He had limited himself to be a child. And obviously, by the age of 12, he became aware, or at least we knew he was aware, that he was God the Son. But as a little child, he was a little child. And the most significant birth, because in John 1.14 it says, the eternal Word who became flesh 
and dwelt among us, supernaturally conceived in a virgin without a human father. That miracle is found in one of the most familiar passages in the whole Bible. We hear it a lot, and especially at Christmas, but I wanted us to look at it with hopefully the desire to say, what's really going on in these seven verses? So you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And amazingly, this is when Luke raises the curtain on the true story of what's really going on here. And I want you to follow in your outline, if you would, and know that there's a decree that's coming out from Caesar. The Roman Empire rules planet Earth, and therefore a decree went out from the head man, Caesar himself, and so everybody had to return to their own city, their, their city of their birthplace. And Joseph, who's from Nazareth at this point, he goes to Bethlehem, where David, the king, was born, and he is of the heritage and the lineage of David. And interesting enough, Mary goes with him, and while there, she goes into labor, she gives birth, the Bible tells us, to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, Luke is describing more than the simple Christmas story here. And so often when we read the scripture, we just glance over these words and really don't take the time to draw out what is he saying here. So I want to do that with you because God is exposing truth here today that actually has implications for your life and my life. Implications in the sense of saying this is something you cannot ignore. It's not just a simple Christmas story. It's much more profound than that. And one truth about the Messiah that every Old Testament believer knew was the fact that the Messiah had to be born in a city called what? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. It's about, oh, it's, it's really within eyeshot of Jerusalem. When you're in Jerusalem, you can see Bethlehem. When you're in Bethlehem, you can see Jerusalem. It's very close. But at this point, it's a small village. And he's going back to this particular village. And the Bible predicted 700 years before the birth of Christ, through the prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that it would be that town that would give birth to the Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins. And look what he says. He says, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old from everlasting, eternal here. God's making it clear that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, even though Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 doesn't mention it. Interesting enough, Luke 2 does do something, though, very powerful. When you read Luke 2 and you begin to really understand what it's explaining, it really is magnifying how God providentially arranged Christ's birth to be in Bethlehem. What he's trying to tell you, the author, Luke, is that God was in charge of all the minute details of the international scene, the national scene, and the personal circumstances of Mary and Joseph's life to arrange this birth. God had amazing amount of details, and all the options had to be sorted through for this to occur, so the Lord's birth would occur precisely at the right time and exactly at the right place. And that's what he's trying to tell us. He's trying to tell us the miracle of providence. Providence is one of my favorite attributes of God. You know why? Because providence is a miracle that occurs every single day in your life. There is nothing that happens to you and nothing that happens to me that is outside of God's providence. And God is orchestrating details and circumstances and relationships in your life so that you are exactly where you are right today. If you're going through a trial, you're going through a circumstance, you're going through a difficulty, God has arranged that to make you more like his son or to draw you to his son. God is in charge of the details of your life. In fact, I love that definition of providence. Uh, take a look at your outline there. Providence is God's operating in every event in the world, directing the things in the universe to his appointed end for those things. Now, my definition, a little simpler, my definition is God's in charge of the details. Can I hear an amen to that? He's in charge. He's in charge of the relationships, everything around you, God's in charge. In fact, you do a little study in your Bible, both Old and New Testament, of providence, and you know what you'll learn? 
you will learn that God's in charge of animals. He actually directs them sometimes to accomplish his purposes. Some of you have a really, 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 really weird pet, right? You know, you had nice kids, but your pet is really strange and weird. Well, that's because God's trying to shape you through that pet, all right? God gave you that pet. Uh, when you, you study the Bible, it'll talk about him directing animals. He directs nations. He directs your successes. He directs your failures. He directs apparent accidents. I don't actually like that term because in a Christian's life, there are no accidents. Nothing happens by accident. In fact, answered prayers, everything, and you know this verse, but let it hit you a little bit differently when it comes to Christmas and let it hit you when it comes to the practical outworking of your life because Romans 8.28 says, and we know that God causes, again, how many things? All things to work together. He orchestrates them together for good, now this is talking to Christians only now, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He's going to work all of that together to accomplish his purposes. Providence. God orchestrated in this text here, Mary and Joseph's visit to Bethlehem and all the circumstances that related to it so that God would be born at the perfect time to fulfill God's prophecy. He arranged the world. He arranged the nation of Israel. He arranged their intimate and personal circumstances to make this happen and to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ. So I want you to read it with that lens clearly in your head, all right? And you have to read it from your outline and not your Bible because some of you still haven't ramped up to a good version. So we're going to go ahead and read it out loud. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's read it together. Here we go, everyone together. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken by Quirinius, who was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. All right, look at this through God's providence. So point number one in your outline, sovereign worldwide providence. Sovereign worldwide providence. God orders all worldwide events to accomplish his will. God does that. He's doing it now. He continues to do that. I know some of you are discouraged with where the world is heading. All right? Is God in charge? Yes or no? Yes. Even under judgment, God is in charge. Even in the decline, God is in charge. And he is in charge of worldwide evidence, uh, providence. And therefore, he directly causes or allows everything. But his will will be accomplished. Take a look at verses 1 through 3. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Caesar Augustus. He's the first Roman emperor uh, under a Rome that occupied Israel. Before then, they were kind of a republic, and then they were a dictatorship. And he's the one who avenged the murder of Julius Caesar. Uh, he's the one that settled the Roman civil war that was a battle was taking place in Philippi. Uh, he's the one who reconquered Egypt and took it back from uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Yes, real people. And yet, in spite of being a world-changing Caesar, he's oblivious to his role in Christ's birth. He has no clue that what he's doing is contributing to the fulfillment of prophecy. Absolutely none. And really, honestly, God is at work in this whole situation internationally, and God is in charge of the emperor's actions. Would you say amen to that? You know, interesting enough, just like God is in charge of our president's actions. Yes, God is in charge. And yes, God is in charge of every dictator's actions right now, precisely working out God's perfect prophetic timetable. The Lord knew when Mary and Joseph had to be in Bethlehem, 
So God planned their visit under the authority of a pagan emperor who was totally ignorant of Scripture. In fact, look at the way Luke starts verse 1, the first three words there, in those days, identifying the immediate times prior to Jesus' pending birth. So what's happening? Well, understand, you want to get to know a little bit of the culture here so like a river that runs under a desert that you don't see underneath this description of caesar is a jewish attitude toward rome now this was actually not an attitude that is unique to the jewish people you would have the same attitude this would be like you being in a country under nazi germany you would not want to be under their heavy hand and rome it really had a heavy hand over israel uh, and they did not always respect their Jewish heritage or their convictions about banners and idolatry, etc. So the Jewish people hated the fact that they had symbols on their flags, and they hated the fact that they had to use these coins for commerce, but they had the picture of Caesar on them, and that was idolatry to them, and they hated that, and so they couldn't stand this kind of thing going on. So this is kind of running underneath this particular passage, and Augustus here, he was born, this is his name, Gaius Octavian, that's his name, and he was the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar, who adopted him as a son and then declared that he would be the heir to the throne of the empire. So he's the designated hitter, so to speak. Octavia didn't immediately ascend to the throne after the assassination of Julius Caesar, but the young man eventually prevailed in a power struggle with three other Roman leaders, and he ruled the empire from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. That's about 41 years. 41 years he was Caesar, and he demonstrated incredible military capability, incredible political savviness, an incredible societal knowledge. He ended all civil wars. He extended Roman boundaries and to the edges of the known world. And his leadership led to what they call, are you ready? You've heard this before, the Pax Romana. It was Octavius who basically brought this about, called the Roman peace. It was like a time that Rome had never experienced before and the world had never experienced this incredible Roman peace, so much so that he was able to build a road system through the entire Roman Empire called the Ignatian Highway that went all through so business could go from country to country and region to region. There were no boundaries anymore. There were no checkpoints anymore. Commerce flowed. Everybody got wealthy. It was an incredible time of blessing, but it was also in preparation for something to occur, right? The message of the gospel. And that's why Jesus said this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, through the apostle Paul. He said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In the fullness, when things were ready to spread, when things were ready to hear that message, well, that was the Ignatian Highway. That was, in a sense, the, the ability to have this kind of message go from place to place without hindrance. That was brand new in the world. It had never occurred before. So everything on the world scene was perfectly arranged and timed for the arrival of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, God alerts us to his providence with this unwitting role of Augustus, Caesar, paving a way for the birth of God the Son. And notice what he says, Luke says here in verse 1, he says, a census was taken and all had to be registered. Now, this was an imperial mandate, all right? An imperial, this was not a law. It was a mandate. Do you guys know anything about mandates? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what this was. It wasn't a Roman law. It was a mandate. But mandates were kind of administered with a, a little bit more pressure maybe than they have been today. Sometimes people could get speared if they didn't follow with the mandate, so to speak. So there was a little bit more pressure there. But understand, Rome did these particular registrations for two reasons. Reason number one was to make sure that we knew who the young men were who were uh, able to be in the military, so they would do that kind of survey. Uh, and they would also take this particular survey for taxes. Well, understand that because of their religious convictions, Jewish men did not have to serve in the Roman military, so they did not. So this is all about taxes. What you're seeing here in Luke chapter 2 is all about collection of taxes. And the people 
when they did this and they went to their hometown, they had to register their names, they had to register their occupation, they had to register their property holdings and their family members to the equivalent, the Roman equivalent of the IRS. And that's what they're doing. So they'll know that they could collect this kind of amount of income from the Roman Empire. Well, the Jews hated this. Now, people typically don't like taxes. Can I hear an amen to that? All right, so understand. But they especially hated paying taxes to these Gentiles who, you know, kind of offended them with their idolatry and their polytheism. And they especially hated fellow Jews like Zacchaeus and like Matthew who actually helped the Romans collect these taxes. They really did not like that. So we don't know how Joseph and Mary felt about Rome. There is no indication in the scripture anywhere. There's not even historians who write about this. So like everybody except for the Jewish zealots, they obeyed the mandate and they left for Bethlehem to pay their taxes. And in spite of a general bad attitude against Rome, God used Augustus and his census to bring Jesus' parents to Bethlehem at just the exact time. Now, you probably didn't know this, so I want to tell you, from history, we learned that this particular census, this specific one, was actually not carried out in Palestine for somewhere between two to four years after the mandate was given. We're talking about providence again, okay? So the mandate is given, but it takes another two years for it to be lived out, filled out. And then, again, looking at God's providence, uh, you know, making these uh, Jewish citizens like Joseph and Mary head to their hometown, finally, Augustus, what he did is he put a strict deadline for compliance, right? Strict deadline. So that's what's going on here. So they've got to get to their hometown, and it's all perfectly planned by a sovereign God who's providentially working in the details to get a pagan government to get them to Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus Christ. Are you getting it? That's what's happening here. And according to Jewish custom, Mary and Joseph returned to their town of origin, Bethlehem, because verse 4, take a look at it, Joseph was of the house and the lineage of David, and David was born in Bethlehem, and he ruled in Jerusalem. But he was born in Bethlehem. So now, understand, you say, is what's the big deal about lineage? You know, I, I don't even know who my parents are, or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Well, the Jewish people, every 50 years... All landowners, various land, would return to its original owners. That was every 50 years. And so, interesting enough, that awareness caused them to really have a strong sense of what their lineage is. They needed to know who their family was and who they belonged to and who owned what. And they kept very careful track of their ancestry and their family history was their identity. And so Joseph is of the house of David, King David. He's in the lineage of the king. And God providentially worked it out, every detail, so the human ruler of the world right now would force Jesus' parents to be in Bethlehem at the precise time of the Lord's birth. And God's will was accomplished. God's prophecy was fulfilled because of that. Well, not only is it international, but also, secondly in your outline, it's God's national providence. National providence in the sense of the nation of Israel. The Lord not only was working on that international scheme to accomplish his perfect plan to get Christ born in Bethlehem, but he's also working out the details of the nation of Israel and to accomplish his purposes. So take a look at verses 4 and 5, and you'll see this national focus here. Joseph also went up from Galilee. That's in the north. That's where the Sea of Galilee is. From the city of Nazareth, which sits right above the Valley of Megiddo, which is that giant place where Armageddon's going to take place, to Judea, to the city of David, which is Bethlehem in the south. Again, really just, just a few miles away from Jerusalem itself because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, who was with child. He travels about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem is about 90 miles. Not that far. Israel's not a big country. Now, when they traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, what animal did Mary ride on? Answer? Okay, thank you very much for that. You walked right into my trap. We don't know if there was any animal. She could have walked. She could have gone by a cart. She could have ridden a horse. She could have rode a camel. 
There is absolutely no indication from history or from Scripture anywhere of what animal she rode to get. That's right, there was a lot of crying going on too on this trip. And amazingly, there, there's absolutely no history at all, no evidence at all. So all those Christmas cards that you have with a donkey, burn them, okay? Because it's not true. It's not true. The Bible doesn't say. But the center of the nativity scene is the town of Bethlehem. And that's the Judean region of Israel in the south. Judea is in the south. And King David, again, one more time, was born in Bethlehem, but he ruled in Jerusalem. So Joseph, as a descendant of David, had to go to Bethlehem, his birthplace. And from the genealogies of Luke and Matthew, we know that Mary, are you ready, was also of the lineage of David. So this is incredible in the sense of a real focus here of the lineage of David. And it's, it seems proper that they would both go there, though it is the husband that needs to actually go to his place of his birthplace. But both of Jesus' earthly parents belong to the lineage of King David of Bethlehem. So now I want you to do, if you would, put yourself in the place of Mary. Mary is not married yet. She's had no intimacy with Joseph or any other man. Just how difficult was it for Mary to explain her pregnancy to her mom, her dad, her relatives, her friends, and her community? How difficult was that? How, how many of them accused Mary of lying? How many of them in their heart of hearts doubted what she might say about her pregnancy and her purity? How encouraging was it when in Luke chapter 1 she visited her relation Elizabeth who then affirmed her and affirmed the supernatural pregnancy that she had, no doubt a needed encouragement in the midst of Mary battling the looks and the talk and the slander and the slights of a woman who was pregnant out of wedlock. And you know, if you read your New Testament, that the Pharisees actually brought this up as an accusation against Christ, that he was illegitimate. And given that environment, there's no way that Joseph would have made that 90-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem without Mary. He would not leave her to be alone. He would not leave her to face greater scorn, even though she's in her ninth month of pregnancy. So he brings her along. And more importantly, Joseph had God's wisdom on the full significance of these events. He knew that Mary was pregnant with the Son of God. Matthew 1 tells us that, that the angel revealed that to him in verses 20 to 25 of Matthew 1. It tells us that Joseph knew the baby would be Jesus, the Messiah, who would save his people from their sins. So he's anticipating something unique here. He knows this. So there's worldwide, there's national providence all coming together to bring about God's birth as a man, God becoming a man, and God is also going to use the personal life of Mary and Joseph to accomplish this in his providence. So that's point number three in your outline, sovereign personal providence. Sovereign personal providence. Take a look at verse six and seven. This is fun. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give what? Birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in clothes. And she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, world and national setting is both crucial to understand the birth of Christ. God's using these incredible providence to make sure of the humble birth of your creator as an infant. But he also not just used world out, you know, <laughs> headlines to accomplish this. He used the personal lives the intimate lives, the circumstances of Mary and Joseph's life to bring this about. The first phrase of verse 6, take a look at it, where Luke continues, it says, while they were there, while they were there. Now, we know that Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem, but it's not initially clear how long they had been in the village, uh, the village of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, at this particular point, is a village, it's not a town, and exactly how long they had been there is somewhat unknown. But we do know that they were already there. Because he tells us, look, in verse 6, the days were completed for her to give birth. So most likely they were there for three days. Possibly they were there for already a week in Bethlehem because Luke adds that phrase, the days were completed. But have you ever pondered long over where the young couple was when Jesus was born? 
Well, you don't have to wonder a lot because Luke describes it in verse 7. Take a look. He says, because there was no room for them, where? In the inn. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to say this because I want you to, you know, get rid of your blow-up that you have outside of the manger. Uh, I, I, I am personally offended when you put the wise men there because they don't belong there. They came later. Put them in the living room and, you know, put your manger somewhere else because they're coming. They're not there yet. But there's also some real misnomers of even what a manger was and, and, and what, what, a, what an inn was, where they were. So understand, practically speaking, during their stay in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph were homeless. They were homeless. That doesn't mean they're completely outside in the cold, but they simply had no comfortable accommodations. Mary and Joseph were not staying at some sort of two-star or one-star hotel. They were definitely not even at a low-budget annex to Motel 6, okay? Even though they leave the light on for you, it's not good. The Greek word for inn here in verse 7 is actually not the usual word for inn. It's unique. It's a unique word. In fact, instead, Luke is using a word that denotes a shelter, uh, a place of lodging for guests. It wasn't an actual inn where you would go and, you know, get food and then have a room, etc., operated for the feeding and housing of guests. Instead, it was a, a sleeping section of a public shelter for people and animals, uh, a campground. John MacArthur writes it this way, it was such shelters typically had, listen to this, four sides and two levels, like a barn, uh, with the top part being the loft in a barn, that's where the people stayed. And then one section of the shelter may have had crude doors to close it off so it kept you from the wind. And the entire structure would have been primitive, the kind of place where travelers could spend one or more nights in the loft area up above and keep their animals down in the center area safe from theft. Their goods could also be stored in the center as well, end quote. Now, how many of you have made plans to go somewhere and because of a concert or because of something you didn't know about, some event, that everything was occupied. Remember that? Have you been in that kind of situation? I can see that you're nodding your head. Well, because of the Roman decree, Bethlehem, this little village was packed, and all the best rooms, all the true inns were taken. So now all they had is these barn shelters, and Mary and Joseph wound up on the floor where the animals were, the animals were normally kept because the barn, even the top part, was occupied with people. Are you getting it? They, there was no room for them in level number two. This is not even an inn like a, a traditional inn. This is just a place where people would stay like a campground and the animals would stay below. They would stay safe. But basically, that's where they were at. So, you know, a lot of your mangers don't look like that, okay? So burn them, all right? Uh, but understand, the inn was full, the top floor. They couldn't get up there, so they had to stay down with all the camels and donkeys and goats and cattle and feeding troughs. There were no pigs in a Jewish center here, okay? So understand, get rid of the pigs as well. So during that time, they would use their own robes. They would use blankets to shield them from the cold. We don't know how long they stayed, uh, whether they registered before the birth or whether they registered, you know, with the tax guys after the birth, we don't know. But we do know that God made sure that they stayed in Bethlehem until Mary gave birth to Jesus. So that Micah 5.2 would be fulfilled. That God's will would be providentially accomplished. In fact, with all the circumstances providentially arranged, the most important birth in human history finally took place and Luke describes it with an economy of words. I wish I had more information, but look what he says in verse 7. She brought forth her firstborn son. That's it. That's the birth of Jesus. He, she brought forth her firstborn son. Now, we can learn a lot from that. What do you imagine that birth was like? Typically, I think you gals probably ponder a little bit more about this than us guys. I just do. But try to picture, and again, I love imagination as long as it's confined by Scripture. Don't imagine outside the truth of Scripture. Don't violate the Scripture. But you can imagine within the confines of Scripture what that might have been like. Now, guys, come on. 
would you be just slightly curious what this child was going to look like because you've been told this is going to be the Savior? This is going to be, you know, the incredible Messiah? Come on, would you anticipate that? You know it's not yours. You know that God brought this about. I mean, you're thinking, is he going to pop out and glow? You know, I mean, what is it going to be like? Uh, So there had to be a lot of that going on. Uh, I think like any good husband, he probably soothed her forehead with a cool cloth. He probably spoke very sweet words of comfort to his bride while she endured labor pains. After all, they both were in a dark and drab place that offered no doctors, no nurses. Even her mother was not present. And she's probably 13, maybe 14 years old. 16 would be way too high. They just didn't marry that old. And so understand, here she is. She only had the assistance and a reassurance of her teenage husband. And they're on the floor with the animals. And after a certain period of time and a certain period of labor, and we don't know how long, Mary would have pushed one last final time to bring forth her child. And the Bible says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. At that very moment, the creator of the universe breathed air like a human being. The very first moment. Incredible. The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent Lord of the universe appeared as a baby crying to life. God limiting himself in such a way that he functioned like a child. He's not secretly inside of Jesus as a baby going, man, this is going to be a long childhood. Okay, that's not happening. Self-limiting himself. I'm not trying to be irreverent. I'm trying to help you to understand what's happening here. And the miracle of this moment, that little life would have tested immediately and found himself immediately resting in the arms of young Joseph, who along with Mary probably did not comprehend the full magnitude of what was happening. They're birthing a baby here. They're not thinking about God incarnate. They're in this situation. They both had been informed. They knew this was an extraordinary birth, and yet at that moment, I'm confident they were just cradling a child. And Luke carefully informs us in verse 7 that Jesus was Mary's firstborn, what? Son. Firstborn. Jesus was not the only son that Mary had. Jesus was not her only begotten like he was to the Father. Jesus was the firstborn, and that's important because it's consistent with Mary's virginity, and it means that Jesus had the primary right to the family's inheritance, both of them being in the lineage of David. They were not wealthy people. There was not going to be a big inheritance from Mary and Joseph, but they were going to have the rights of the lineage of King David to rule his people Israel from David's throne, the throne of Christ's people Israel. And Luke chapter 2 verse 7 gives us a little bit more familiarity and a little bit more understanding of what's happening here. Take a look. Mary wrapped Jesus in what? Clothes. Swaddling clothes, we learn, is an old English word. It describes wrapping with cloth. And the ancient custom here was to wrap the arms and the legs and the body of the baby with long strips of cloth to provide warmth and security. Uh, Jesus would look like a little mini mummy. I wonder if that's what he called Mary. Uh, Sorry. Anyway, understand, parents in those days also believed that when you wrapped a child like that, you helped his or her bones to be straight. And Luke's point of mentioning the clothes here, why does he do that? He wants you to know that Mary treated Jesus the way any mother would treat a normal newborn. Fully God and fully what? Man. 100% God, 100% man. Physically, he looked like any other child. His parents treated him as such. God did not provide him with royal robes. God did not provide him with fancy clothing. He did not glow. There was no halo. He cried. He desired to have mother's milk and the only way he could communicate that was through a cry he went through the normal functions of a little baby this is the self-limiting of God and Mary also verse 7 it says laid him in a what 
a manger. A manger is a feeding trough. They're down there with the animals. That's what they've got. Joseph and Mary staying in the section of the shelter that accommodated a traveler's animals, so they conveniently made his first bed a feeding trough. Wow. Stinky, smelly animals and a feeding trough for a bed. Wow. When Christ entered the world, he came to a place that had some of the smelliest, filthiest, most uncomfortable conditions. But that was part of the awesome power of God's grace. When God the Son came down from heaven, he came all the way down. He did not hang on to his equality with God as a thing to be grasped. The Bible tells us in Philippians and other places that he humbled himself and was born a man, born in humility, and he set aside his equality with God for a time and completely functioned under being a man in dependence upon the Spirit of God. But never forget, this sacrifice, this humility of becoming a man was nothing compared to to what Christ would do later. Nothing. God in a feeding trough was nothing compared to what Jesus did about your sin. His birth is a big deal, but it is not the most important. The early church didn't even celebrate Christmas because it was not the most important. What Christ did for you is even more smelly, more uncomfortable, more sacrificial, more stinky, and more loving than you can even imagine. Has someone ever greatly sacrificed for you? I think if we actually took the time to share stories, we would hear tales of sacrifice. My wife, Jean, sacrifices for me all the time. I'm blown away by it. It just comes naturally out of her. I remember as I was thinking about this question, anybody sacrificing for you, I had a man once offer to give me a down payment from my house, taking a loan out on his house in order to provide for me a down payment because he knew that as a poor youth pastor, I'd never get there. I had a, a high school gal once that went to bat for me when I had made a tragic mistake. I had a man once pay what was lacking in my salary for an entire year after I'd been treated horribly. I have seen sacrifice in my life. I have. But only one person loved me enough to die for me, only one. He died the death that I should have died. He embraced the torture that I deserved for an eternity in hell upon himself on the cross. Jesus didn't just merely humble himself and agree to be born in a smelly stable. He humbled himself as a substitute for wretched sinners like me and like you. He bore the stench of my guilt in his own body on the cross. He came down for common people to bring them his glorious salvation. And the picture of the infant Son of God tolerating a stable's dirt and foul odor is really a fitting metaphor. As he died at Calvary and put up with the stink of our sin, and that could, the only way you could describe our sin to a holy God is stink. So you could live with God, and you could be right with God, and you could enjoy him now and forever. That's what he did. So take this home with me, would you please? Letter A in your outline. The birth of Christ was planned. World, national, and personal providence compelled Jesus, his parents, to go to Bethlehem. But more crucial than those factors, he had to travel to David's home to fulfill prophecy given by Micah. Now understand, why are you making a big deal about this? Listen, the Old Testament was completed 400 years before the birth of Christ. It was put together, the 39 books... 400 years before Christ was born. It was translated, those 39 books, translated from Hebrew to Greek called the Septuagint that was completed 200 years before Christ was even born. So when we have a prophecy 700 years before Christ, that's legit. 
But it's not just one prophecy that he was born in Bethlehem. There are over 300, you can add it up, there's debate, maybe 350 Old Testament promises that are fulfilled in the person of Christ. Now, if you have any sort of math background, the statistics, the probability for that is so astronomical, there's not enough zeros to give you tenths to the whatever power. It is so beyond that, that, that you, how can you de- debate the issue that the Messiah, the eternal being, the ruler born in Bethlehem, has then accomplished God's purposes and that this is all true, based in history, based in fact. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and I dare you to try to disprove the Scripture. I dare you. Oh, maybe your English professor attacked the Bible and you've kept that. Maybe you've heard other legitimate, you know, so-called legitimate professors and others wipe out the Bible. Listen, I challenge you to do it yourself. Because as you find this is based in history and all those prophecies all accomplished in the person of Christ, that is evidence, my friends, that Christ is who he said he was. In fact, letter B, Mary needed a Savior and so do you. The only reason anyone would ever be calling God their Savior is they know they're a sinner. And that's exactly what Mary does in Luke chapter 1, verse 47. She says, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. That's an admission that she needs a Savior from sin. You don't need a Savior for any other reason except that you're a sinner. And so from the shock of Gabriel's announcement to the awareness of her need for God's grace and the declaration that she's a sinner, she needed a Savior. She admits her sin. Mary needed a Savior. And she admits she had no hope except that God would be merciful to her and that he would provide a way for her to be saved, a Savior who would then take her place, a Savior who would pay the penalty of death for sin, a Savior who would bear the wrath of hell for her sin so she would not have to go there. And amazingly, she held her Savior in her arms. Amazingly, she held her Creator in her arms. She held the very one who would forgive her and make her right so she could be in God's presence forever. And when Jesus rose from the dead, there's 120 saints all in the upper room, all waiting for the completion of the Spirit of God to descend so they could then declare and the church could be born, and Mary is in that group. She knows she needs the Spirit. She knows she needs a Savior. She is a believer in Christ at that point, and she will be in heaven not because she was sinless. She will be in heaven far from it. Because her sin was paid for by her Savior, who also happened to be her firstborn son. Does that kind of pop your brain a little bit? Here she is. And let her see, you're not under circumstances, my friends. You're under providence. Whether you acknowledge it or not, God is in charge. And because he is in charge, and you're hearing the message of Christ then the call is that you would turn from your way and your sin and follow Christ. The the call is for you to put your life in His hands, put your sin on His cross, and He can cover you with His righteousness. That you surrender to Him by faith. That you would believe what He accomplished. If you are not in Christ, you will not be in heaven. If you are not in Christ... You say, I prayed a prayer once. I made a decision. I I like Jesus. Yeah, but does it show in your life? Because faith without works is what, friends? Dead. And the proof that your faith is genuine is you follow Christ. You obey his word. If you submitted to Christ in salvation, you'll submit to Christ in sanctification. Will you do it perfectly? No, but you will pursue him. If you have a fake faith, you just know about him and live your life for yourself. If you have a genuine faith, that faith has transformed you internally and now you're a new person. You'll not follow Christ. You'll not submit to his teaching. You'll not obey his word. You'll not serve Christ with your entire life if you have a fake faith. But Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Understand, true Christians are willing to do anything for Christ. Give up anything for Christ. Give anything to Christ. Worship him with everything they are and all that they have because he's their first love above their spouse, above their children, above their possessions. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's what the Bible calls us to. If you see no change in your life, no service of ministry, no involvement in other believers' lives and community, no giving to his purposes, no worship where you offer your life, then cry out to Christ today for a new heart. 
Not that you would just have this standing, but when you have this standing and his righteousness covers you, you have a regeneration. God changes you, and now you can turn from your sin. You can worship Christ. You can surrender and put your life in his hands, and you will love him now. You will walk abundantly now, and you will walk triumphantly, eternally, forever with Jesus Christ because of what he did and not what you did, because of the incarnation becoming a man and then offering self as our substitute on the cross, rising from the dead, you can live forever. Can I hear an amen to that? And all because he began that process on Christmas morn. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this celebration. Thank you for what you did for us in your son. Father, there are two kinds of people here. Lord, there are people who don't know you. They think they do. They know about you, but they have not been transformed by you. Father, would you crack their heart? Would you help them to see that they are under your condemnation, that they have no hope of salvation until they surrender to you, they exchange all that they are for all that you are, Father, that they turn in repentance from their sin to follow you, that they put their life in your hands, that they're covered in your righteousness, that they're regenerated in heart so they have a new desire to follow you and please you. And Father, for the rest of us, may we celebrate what you did. May we marvel at your incredible humility. May we thank you for the love that drove you to die on our behalf. Thank you for the incredible sinlessness that caused you to raise from the dead and live as the only way of salvation. And Father, help us, each one of us, to remember that you are provident. In every detail of our lives, nothing is by accident. So we trust you and we thank you. And we want to give you our love and praise and worship and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.